Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Sit back and enjoy the stroke play of Meg Lanny. This is excellent batting by Ash Gardner. Jonathan strikes again. She's on a hat-trick. She comes at Molyneux. Cates is taken by Perry. The Australian women's cricket team win their fifth T20 World Cup title in front of a magical crowd at the MCG. Welcome back to The Scoof. We are the cricket podcast dedicated to the women's game. Now, we've got a really exciting episode today for two reasons. Firstly, we've got a ripper guest. So we've got trailblazing broadcaster Alison Mitchell, who joined us for a really insightful chat about her career to where she is now. Also, the WNCL is back and starting on Saturday in Canberra. Finally, this is so exciting. We've had a few delays. It usually starts in September. Then it was going to be mid-January, then later in January. And then we had border closures. And now we're finally, we're here in Canberra. And it all starts on Saturday. And we can't wait. We sure cannot wait. So the first game back, we've got the ACT Meteors hosting the Queensland Fire here in Canberra. Looking at the Queensland squad, LJ, we've got some big names back in action. Jess Jonathan, Beth Mooney are back for the fire. You recently spoke to Queensland coach Ash Nofke. What did he have to say about how they're shaping up ahead of the season? Yeah, Ash was really excited about how they're looking. And I think fans of the Brisbane Heat and WBBL could look at the Queensland fire squad and see it's pretty similar. The, the big inclusion there is Beth Mooney, who of course still plays for her state of Queensland. Um, Ash said they're just really raring to go. They've had quite a break after coming out of the WBBL bubble um, and they just want to get out there. And he's tipping um, a few of the young kids to go really well this season, like Georgia Vol, who we saw a bit of in WBBL, and Charlie Knott. Awesome. Yeah, it'll be good to see the fire back in action. Yeah, it is kind of like a carbon copy of that uh, Brisbane Heat side, except for obviously... Beth Mooney and the Meteors, they're obviously missing Maitland Brown, who was sidelined during the WBBL season with a hamstring injury so that she's still recovering from that. But they've got Captain Andreeks back in action and ready to go. Meteors coach John O'Dean also mentioned to you, LJ, two other names that will be familiar to those who follow the WBBL. So he seemed pretty pumped about how um, both... Nicola Hancock and Maddie Penner are coming along ahead of the season. Yeah, so John I reckons with ball, Nicola Hancock is one to watch out for. And I think everyone who watched WBBL would know she's been bowling absolute gas and is looking very exciting. And the other one he tipped is Maddie Penner um, to dominate with the bat. I think 
again, watching WBBL, she was hitting some enormous sixes and being really aggressive. And um, he reckons she could hit it out of any ground they're going to play at this WNCL. So hopefully we see her hitting some absolute bombs. Watch out. It could be the Grace Harris versus Maddie Penner six hitting show tomorrow. And we've also got a few more teams jetting into Canberra over the next week. So we've got South Australia coming and also Tasmania coming over to Canberra to get their seasons underway. And the good news is that we are here in Canberra to cover the matches. So cover the first week of the tournament. So we'll be here with a camera to bring you plenty of highlights and match reports and social coverage. So you can keep up to date with the WNCL better than ever. Yeah. And in more good news, fans are going to be able to attend WNCL matches this season free of charge. And that's in every city that's hosting games. So not just here in Canberra, but you'll be able to get down to Junction Oval in Melbourne in a few weeks' time. Blundstone Arena has heaps of games. It's looking really exciting. Absolutely. It's good to see the girls back in action. And now enjoy a fascinating chat with legendary broadcaster Alison Mitchell. Now, on today's episode of The Scoop, we are very fortunate to be joined by BBC, ABC and Channel 7 broadcaster Alison Mitchell, one of the most decorated broadcasters in world cricket and a trailblazer in the industry. Ali, thank you so much for making the time to join us today. Thanks, Emily. And hi, Laura. It's good to be with you. So you've just finished off broadcasting one of the most incredible men's test series that we've seen on Aussie soil. Are you able to sort of take us through what it like give us a give us a sense of the build up to that fifth test and how you manage to sort of keep your focus and convey all those emotions to the fans in such a brilliant way. Do you know what? When a match bubbles up to what that one did, it's the easiest time to commentate. It really is because you're in a full you know you hear about cricketers talking about being in the zone and being in a, like a state of flow. I feel like you get like that in commentary when everything is happening you're so enveloped in it you're involved in it you're living and breathing it and it makes it then the easiest job in the world and then you know coupled with that you're sitting next to the likes of Ricky Ponting, Son of Gavaska, Michael Slater you know all those guys to bring their insight and their knowledge into it and I think we all felt as if that last day flew by because it was tense from the word go, wasn't it? You sort of had certain expectations of the way the day would unfold and certain hopes as well from the Australian perspective and hopes, you know, from the Indian fans from their perspective. And the great thing about sport and why I love commentary and I think I was lent towards commentary so much is because it's it's the great unscripted drama, isn't it? The beauty of it is you just don't know what's going to happen. What's the sense like at the end of the day? Is it like, a, do you just take a deep breath and think, oh my God, we did it. Like, and that was an amazing thing to witness. Yeah, I, I think you. We all just step back and we're like, God, that was that was incredible cricket. Like, no matter. I mean, I think as a as a broadcaster, and when you've been in commentary for a while, you you take a middle ground. I mean, I think probably maybe a bit harder for some of those um, ex players who are still very close to the game, and you know, those who still work, you know, with you know, in respective coaching roles and so on. But you become a neutral, really, no matter what country you're from. When you're a journalist and you've been in the game a long time, you you become a neutral, and you just appreciate and want a great contest and you want the twists and the turns and the drama and to being have all of that sort of encapsulated and we had all that within within that final day everything came together India's resilience Australia striving getting a wicket thinking perhaps this will be the moment and then it wasn't and it's India wrestling it back and then Rishabh Pant just taking it away and it was, yeah, it was, it had a little bit of everything, didn't it, for sort of the great, the great novels, if you like, of our time. 
Yeah, it was absolutely incredible. And you've been in the broadcasting industry for around 20 years, I think, covered all sorts of sports from tennis to the Olympics and, of course, cricket. What's it about cricket that's made you dedicate so much of your time and energy to that in um, recently? Yeah, I think a cricket is always the sport that's been the central thread. You know, I look back, I, I was brought up as a, a sporty kid, so I played all sports and ironically didn't really get a chance to play cricket formally. But cricket was still always there because I grew up in a household where my, well, my mum's Australian from Adelaide, my dad English. Um, so we had that ashes banter within the household and an older brother. And of course, I just wanted to do everything that my older brother did. So I got taught to play cricket and hold a bat at the same time that he was being taught how to hold a bat. And I would sometimes fill in as we got older, I'd fill in for my brother's team every now and again, you know, when we were teenagers. But sport for me at school was hockey, netball, tennis, athletics, swimming. I did whatever I could. And if cricket had been offered for girls, I would have been playing cricket too. So the love of cricket was always there. And then the interest in journalism and broadcasting came along when I was about 17. And of course, once I got into a radio station, for me, just the coolest program and the only one that I really wanted to be involved in was the Saturday sports show. And then when it came to really wanting to get into that as a career, I was actually at university and had decided long ago that I wanted to do my dissertation based on sports and the media because that was the career path I wanted to go into. And therefore, when it came to doing my research, it had to be done in the summer months. And it was just natural that I then turned to cricket to base my research on and spent hours in the Trent Bridge Library. So I went to university in Nottingham. I, I met people, I shadowed people in broadcast, behind the scenes. I talked to umpires, talked to players, talked to marketeers of the game. And I suppose that was what really shifted me from cricket being the sport that we watched and we played and I loved to being the sport I actually took an academic interest in and a sort of business interest in and thinking, well, actually, yeah, this is, this is then something that I, I can see a pathway into doing this it's actually something I want to do yeah that's super fascinating and but your so your degree at university it was based around geography wasn't it wasn't it <laughs> yeah it was a geography degree yeah. and then you somehow found your way into broadcasting like I'm, I'm a real geek about geography and I'll tell <laughs> any students when I go to speak at schools that geography is just the best degree to do because actually you can tailor it towards whatever you want to do and I had discovered that there was you know, there's two sides of geography, physical geography, which is what everybody knows and thinks of with your rivers and your mountains and your lakes and your climatology and oceanography. And, and then there's human geography, which is what I learned more about at university, which is, I suppose, like economic geography, cultural geography, political geography. But yeah, sport sat in this little niche called cultural geography on an academic sense. And so for me, it was it was delving into the game in terms of like the moral codes of the game, which of course we all know about. It's the spirit of cricket. It's on a broadcasting level, things like how much, well, still conversations we have today, how much do the stump microphones encroach on the player's privacy out in the middle? How much does uh, technology encroach on the authority of the umpire? So all these sort of moral type of questions, um, as well as looking at yeah, cricket's if you like, sort of the political power nexus that, that cricket has with broadcasters and, and media, which is, as we know, a huge driver of the game. Broadcast money is, is, is a huge rock on which, you know, a lot of the game is, is based on these days. So, yeah, that really gave me a brilliant grounding in terms of being a journalist in the game because I 
uh, through it, I guess I was able to show that I had an understanding, not only of the way the game was played, but sort of just the fabric of the sport as well. And it absolutely played, that document when I looked back, played a really key role in me getting some of my first roles in cricket because it was still a time when it wasn't assumed that women knew much about cricket. You know, this was sort of, yeah, early 2000s. But having 10,000 words that I could send to prospective people I wanted to work with just instantly showed that I did know the game in a, in a deep and meaningful way. So you've been yeah broadcasting obviously since the early 2000s and yeah as you were mentioning it's you're a woman in a predominantly male dominated field was there ever sort of a time where you thought oh maybe this isn't the right path for me or maybe I don't belong here or did you just sort of back yourself and back back the knowledge that you had in your, in your dissertation? Yeah I think I really did just believe that or, or have a sort of quite confidence that I knew what I was talking about and I and I could speak about cricket in the way that I was watching these men on cricket speak about the game and, and I think a lot of that also probably came up from simply the fact that I grew up with an older brother and I was used to just mixing it with all my male cousins who all played cricket and even, like, within the family I wouldn't always be the only girl because again I think there was this a sense of yeah cricket is is just what we play as a family but yeah often I might have been the only girl to go off and join all the boys and play it's just what I like to do so I was never phased by if you like male company or being the only girl in the male environment I was I was sort of used to it so I accepted it um what I love now the most though is the fact that for the last sort of five six years or so like I haven't been the only woman and now there's so many of us but for a long time in all the I've probably spent about well, from 2005 was my first cricket tour away. Um, I went with Engl- England women to the World Cup in South Africa and then England men to Pakistan. And that was the start of, of, of a decade of touring and following predominantly the England men's team, but England women as well for World Cups. And on the men's tours, I can only really think of a, a couple of tours where I had another female for company within the press pack, within the media pack. So that's that's the biggest shift that I've I'm so pleased about that that the sort of voice of women in broadcasting and sports broadcasting has become more normalized in commentary and and women are now actively sought to make those diverse and inclusive and welcoming sounding teams. I do think it it makes a difference in a broadcast for women listening to hear other women talking about it, it makes you think yeah this is a game for me as well it just broadens the appeal in a positive way 100 percent. and i think anytime anyone hears you talking on radio or tv it's so obvious how much you know about the game and about the the players you're commentating how much time do you spend researching and preparing for a series yeah quite a lot actually quite a lot and i i think that's partly because well i always feel as a journalist my role in a commentary box is to know more than the the viewer or the listener because I'm there to inform. I'm I'm there to 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 give added knowledge. Like I'm I'm in that role. I, I ought to know more than the person listening. I want to then impart and share. And so yeah, players-wise, I, I suppose I take quite a lot of pride in yeah researching players' backstories. I guess that's the journalist in me as well, is that I enjoy stories. So I love learning about somebody's pathway, something quirky about them. Um, I've got my expert summarizers there to really dissect technique and and that sort of thing. So I'm I'm quite happy not to. That's not my territory. And I think radio in particular is always very clear on those roles and that you have that lead commentator voice who's the lead ball by ball. 
describing play and then your expert summarizer to to explain that play doesn't mean that there's not that interchange and you both have a certain amount of shared knowledge and you need that in order to ask the right questions and have discursive debate and conversation but yeah there's very much that that role of you can really play the strong journalistic lead and that then has been really well sort of reflected now in, in the way that we frame up the commentary with seven on the coverage because it's a very strong sense of you've got me tim lane and james brayshaw as the leads with your former captains whereas you know going back to prior to probably 2017 18 television commentary just felt really mu very much like the preserve of the former player um people like harsha Boglo and alan wilkins have always had a good presence in um in, on the international scene but when I was asked to do BT Sport commentary of the Ashes in 2017-18 over here in Australia, that was quite a shift for the UK audience to have a, a, a journalist in the lead seat for test match commentary. Okay. So, yeah, I feel really pleased that that has now become something of a thing and, and that television executives are valuing having, having journalistic broadcasters Absolutely. to lead coverage. You know, just realizing that value alongside, of course, the value that is, is there and is massively, you know, completely needed to have your, your former players and pros in there. Yeah, definitely. And I'm sure the fans appreciate it too. Like it's always such a good blend. But did you ever sort of feel like as a woman and maybe in the early days, like I'm sure everyone knows how well-versed you are now, but maybe that you had to prove yourself more simply just because you were a woman and you hadn't played the game yourself? Yeah, definitely. I put a lot of pressure on myself, feeling like I couldn't put, a foot wrong because the environment that I stepped into in the UK in 2007, which is when I did my first um, international ball by ball commentary, which was actually at the T20 World Cup. So broadcasting back with BBC Test Match Special. It was just at a time when a very good friend of mine, Jackie Oatley, had been the first woman to commentate on Match of the Day, the iconic BBC football Premier League highlights show in the UK. And it had created an almighty backlash and you know jackie's absolutely brilliant at what she does like brilliant broadcast like still is was then however just that sense of how can a woman be commentating on football and i was so i was acutely aware that that was the backdrop to me then doing my first england commentary although slightly different to me in that i, I had had the benefit of commentating on county cricket for a good year before that and then reporting on England and being a major voice for BBC Five Live back in the UK on men's cricket for three or four years by then. So actually my voice, yeah, so my voice to the listener was already known. It wasn't like a big shock. And, and actually, because I specifically you know, talked to the BBC about it and didn't want to make a big deal about it. Like we weren't going to publicize and say, this is Alison Mitchell's first, you know, first England commentary, first female to do ball by ball since. And again, this was another thing. Donna Simmons, who was a West Indian commentator, had commentated on Test Match Special just a couple of games as a guest commentator around about 1999, 2000. And I'd always been aware that she had gone down a storm. She'd been really popular. And, and right. so there had been sort of a precedent, albeit it had been sort of about a decade and no one before and no one since. And this current backdrop of, you know, what was going on sort of in the UK around around the football commentary. Um, so I think all those factors certainly, certainly helped. Um, and the fact that my voice was already known by the audience and, and trusted by the audience. I think a lot of people didn't realise that it was my first commentary because, as I said, we didn't make any kind of announcement or song and dance about it. 
but I'd also felt that that was necessary. I really felt that if you put your sort of hand up at that point and tried to be too sort of loud and proud about it, you were asking to be shot down. And um, oh. I was very, very conscious that I felt and believed the way to succeed and to then have longevity in this is just to quietly get your head down and just work and sort of and not not consciously try to be noticed just just work along with everybody else yeah it's probably changed now hasn't it as in the environment's probably changed a lot now like it's sort of celebrated and it's just sort of normal like you hear Aisha and Mel and yourself obviously like it's just part of the part of the furniture yeah and and that for me says I was absolutely right to do what I did back then because I I just wanted to bed down and just be accepted and and to sort of normalize the sound of of my voice and therefore the female voice so then it meant I think that when other people then began it wasn't a shock to the system to the listeners because it was known that oh yeah well actually women women can talk knowledgeably about cricket of course they can because we've heard Ali Mitchell talk knowledgeably about it for years um whereas yeah certainly at the at the start I really felt as if if I put a foot wrong it wouldn't have been, and I've heard lots of other women say, say this as well, that it wouldn't have been Alison Mitchell's a poor commentator. It would have been women can't commentate, this sort of blanket criticism. So I do think that has changed now to a degree. Every now and again, something will crop up and you think, oh, have we turned the clock back oh, 10 yeah. years? <laughs> but on, on the whole, yep. And we see it, you know, commentary now is well established in women across sports, which is so gratifying and I love the fact that I have company <laughs> when I travel the world now working I on I bet there's just such a, a lot of pressure to have felt early on and now when you're commentating what are the differences between working on tv and radios do you have a different approach yeah and the mediums are, are both different and I guess style stylistically it's different as well and clearly television you're guided by the pictures so and you can let the pictures breathe. You want to let those pictures breathe. So periods of silence are fine. Radio, yeah, it's descriptive. It's discursive. You, you can go off topic wherever you want. Um, television is, I suppose, a lot more led by um, producers and directors because, of course, directors are calling the shots. Although it's a two-way street. So, you know, good directors will listen to what we're talking about and find shots that match. And we can buzz down to the director and say, oh, can you get me a shot of so-and-so? I want to say something about them. So it is a real two-way street. And actually at Seven, we had a a director uh, working with us, Susie, um, this year who was sort of thrown into it really a bit at the last minute because our usual director, Rob, got caught up with the COVID cluster in Sydney and after the Adelaide test and actually wasn't able to to work with us anymore because he couldn't get into Melbourne. So, yeah, so we had Susie directing men's test cricket for the very first time. I don't think, I meant to look up actually and try and find out whether there's been another woman to direct men's test cricket or not anywhere in the world. Um, I know Helen Falkers at Sky has certainly done a bit of directing, but yeah, it was a real, yeah, it was a good fillip for Susie. I mean, and often, yeah, you get chucked into things. You, you have to just suddenly learn on the job and it's sometimes, yeah, it's sometimes the best way because you haven't had a chance to think too much about it or worry too much about it so so she did a great job and um yeah so there's that constant dialogue between yeah common the commentary box and uh, and the, the trucks or the control room as you have for television radio you're you're just much much freer um you take it wherever you want as you get very little or no real direction sort of in your headphones the producer sits back and listens they trust you to 
know where you want to take it and they trust you to be editorially responsible, you know, not not say anything that's going to defame anybody or anything like that. So, yeah, there's a there's a wonderful freedom and poetry about radio, being able to describe and, and paint pictures. And I always I always feel the most gratified if we get emails from uh, our blind listeners who because that's that's almost who we're talking to. Well, all, all listeners are, are blind in a sense that they're not at the cricket unless they're literally sitting there with headphones on or they've you know, turned the TV down and put the radio on. But yeah, if, if, if I get you know, a member from the blind community who will email and say, you know, you, you paint wonderful pictures, then that's me. It just means, yep, I'm, I'm doing my job. I'm transporting them to the cricket and making them feel like they're there. So they're probably yeah, key differences, I think. Do you have a preference between radio and TV? Um, I've really found that doing television has really sort of invigorated me these last few years because I've been you know, doing radio for a, a long, long time and was ready for a bit of a, a new challenge and something to just refresh. And so I find it quite stimulating having to switch between the two because they are such different skills. And then there's then there's a third skill as well, which in the UK I work on the television highlights commentary of um, international cricket which is different again because Sky Sports do the full live ball by ball full live television commentary and then what was Channel 5 and is now BBC we just commentate to create a one hour program of the cricket so we don't commentate some people say oh do you commentate the whole game then it just gets chopped up which is I guess how say if Fox or 7 were doing a highlights package you just chop it up because that's what you have Whereas the the art of it that Mark Nicholas really brought in, because he did Channel 5 for so long, was to, you don't talk for ages and until something happens that you can sense is going to make the highlights real. So, you know, you're not going to talk over like, you know, four dot balls in and over, unless, you know, a ball spitting out the rough and it's a near miss. But you've got to really judge when to come in and when to speak. So don't bother wasting words. But if you've got something you want to say, you almost have to you store it up until there's a bit of action. So a boundary comes flying off the bat. So rather than just saying, you know, wonderful boundary, well timed, whatever it might be, um, you then use the opportunity to think, right, well, that is a clip which is going to make the highlights package. So now I need to yep, call the boundary, but then also sort of fill the viewer in on what they haven't seen over the last 10 minutes maybe since the last boundary or the last shot that would have made highlights the last bit of action that would have made highlights so it's it's I, I feel like it's the, the the third skill of commentary live radio live television and then commentating for highlights where you're actually just looking to make a narrative program so you've got to tell the narrative of the story in and amongst calling the action as it happens there you go so, with yeah, not much time like no. not enough time to sum up the whole like 10 minutes previously. <laughs> oh, exactly. And when you think of how many hours, you know, a test match day is to bring that down mm. to one hour, but to try and actually tell the whole story and make sure a, a viewer can watch and not just see, okay, four, four, catch, catch, go down, near miss, play and miss, four, four, but actually to explain the narrative. Yeah. of Perhaps how that batsman has been playing for the last half an hour maybe how long they've been lodged on naught for before they've got off the mark. Um, all, all these things just to fill in the viewer's gap to make them feel as if at the end of that hour, they've actually experienced all the, the twists and turns and the ups and downs of a whole day's cricket. That's fascinating. I'd always wondered how those um, packages got put together and how you guys approached <laughs> that. 
<laughs> yeah, really it is. It has been quite. It, I found it again really stimulating, and I, I think that move from radio into doing a lot more television has really given me a kind of bit of a, you know, an added boost over these last three or four years um, because you, you know, you don't ever want to get stale at anything. And the beauty about sport is actually that it doesn't matter how long you've been doing it, and you, know, you sit down behind the microphone, and it's always going to be different. Yeah, and and also I remember chatting to one of our BBC commentators at the Olympics in Rio last year, and we just had a bit of a quiet moment after we'd both done our last events of the Games. And he said, you know, the, the great thing about, this is John Murray, who's revered BBC radio commentator, does, he's known for football in the UK, but does Olympic sports as well, and golf and or tennis. So yeah, all sorts. Um, he just said, yeah, the, the beauty of it is that we will never feel like we've cracked it. And I said, you know, you're right, because it is live, because it is different. It, it's always stimulating because you'll never come away from a day of commentary rarely going, I got everything absolutely perfect. I mean, you think you're on air for eight hours in a day. How can you absolutely do everything at your you know, peak? 100% like it does always keep changing and always keep us on our toes. And as you were saying before, you've met some incredible people. And I'm sure you've crossed paths with some yeah, unbelievable names in sport. Is there anyone that sort of stuck out in your career as a, a real mentor and someone that's guided you sort of maybe from your early days and that you still keep in touch with? Oh, do you know, I was thinking the other day about all the different people who have helped in their various different ways along the way. And there, there are so many. There, there's, there's not sort of one major person that has, I suppose, have always been my go-to. Um, but even when you think back and think, right, you know, I remember the very first time I was, I was given a chance on BBC local radio, and that was John Sinclair, who was a sports editor at Radio Leicester, who you know gave me a job doing local breakfast bulletins on the strength of my CV and a demo tape straight out of college. And you think, yeah, he took a bit of a leap of faith. Um, Gary Francis, who was the executive producer at Sunset and Vine, who I interviewed as part of my dissertation, he then offered me a job as a runner on Channel Four Cricket, on the strength of that. And that was what really got me yeah, into my first experiences of, of you know, working um, in cricket, in television. And I was making Richie Benno his tea and coffee and was able to just watch and sit and listen at close quarters and just be a sponge as to how, you know, television commentary worked, um, you know, front and behind the scenes. Rob Sherlock, the director who's now at Seven, was directing Channel 4 then and Channel 9. And he invited me behind the scenes at the SCG when I was there on holiday one year after having worked at Channel 4. And it was that behind the scenes visit where I also managed to stick my head inside the BBC commentary box and handed my demo tape to Adam Mountford, who had just become the BBC Five Live cricket producer. So off the, off the back of that, that was my contact with Adam. And, and he really has been the he's given me the, the greatest opportunities throughout my BBC career. He has, he's been the consistent thread um, who yeah, got me involved on air with Five Live, um, believed me and, and you know, didn't turn a hair when I said, I want to commentate. I have more to say than doing you know, 30 second updates on county cricket. I, I want to do more. And so he absolutely didn't even turn a hair at that and was like, yeah, we'll have a go at commentating, you know, commentate into a tape. Let's have a listen. And, and yeah, invested the time uh, and effort into into me honing that skill and bringing me up through the ranks. So there's yeah a lot, a lot of a lot of people along the way, and there'll be names there that that I haven't mentioned who I should do. Um, but yeah, I think 
yeah you do and, and you also yeah you do remember the people that I think when you're young just took a bit of an interest um yeah and, and, and also you, you know that you know whenever you if you do want to ring and ask for advice that you can um so yeah pretty that's been pretty important I've been so lucky throughout my career as well just to have a really supportive family back home and my mum and dad have just been you know absolute rocks and there's been you know more than more than once have I had to move back home for various reasons either because my um you know, my landlord sort of stopped you know pulled the rent on my place in the first cricket tour I went on to Pakistan I came back and then lived back at my parents for six months because my rental agreement came to an end that kind of thing and then I've had I had a couple of bouts of just sort of unlucky um sort of fairly serious ill health as well where I've ended up as a 30 year old back living at mum and dad's house you know um and you know at times wondered if I'd be able to broadcast again and, and if I'd oh. be able to to work again so yeah they've been absolute rocks throughout which has been yeah really really important I think when you spend a lot of time away from home and out of suitcases and you know Laura knows what touring's like in particular <laughs> and just to know that you've always got a, a bit of a you know solid support base from your family so important. And over that time have you noticed a shift in the perception around the way the cricket community views the contribution of women and, and not just players but also broadcasters, administrators, coaches, umpires? Yeah definitely a lot of that I feel like the progression of women in cricket overall has been a bit of a hand-in-hand approach with greater success growth visibility of of the women's game coupled with the women's voices uh, in broadcasting but you know the, the the drive that's come from women behind the scenes in cricket like claire connor belinda clark um, Artie Dabas, who's a name a lot of people won't know, but she has driven broadcasting at, at the ICC of Women's World Cup events. And overall, so the women's game becoming becoming professional means standards do go up, which means television networks or even like Cricket Australia investing in the coverage of the domestic game, you know, long before TV networks were doing it. And I remember you know, working 2015, Laura, on, um, you know, women's international games at CA was streaming and they weren't being shown. I think Channel 9 might have taken a couple of T20s that year, for example, but it was nowhere near what it is now. But that investment showed that an audience could be gained for the game because numbers online, I think, exceeded, you know, expectations. And then TV networks start to go, oh, if there's that many people actually watching it online, well, maybe maybe it is worth us putting it on our network. And then the the WBBL is is launched, and then numbers grow again, and the game's becoming more professional. And so it means now as well that when girls finish their cricket career, when women finish playing, the game has got the respect and the profile for them to move into a media role and a commentary box because a women's voice on cricket is now also an accepted and, and completely normal thing. So all of those factors, it's sort of a lovely converging of, of success and growth, both on the media side and on the playing side that, that combines to mean that, you know, cricket has a greater, a greater impact on the commercial world as well, because the sponsors now see that value. And so cricket being supported by commercial partners, elevating them again into a, a, a space of greater visibility. Yeah, I think overall, absolutely, women have a, a, a greater voice and a, 
a greater significance and, and weight uh, mm-hmm. in the game than 100%. you know we've ever seen before. Other like obviously we've seen the likes of Mel Jones, Lisa Stalaker, Ebony Radford Brand go into commentary roles yeah. after their playing careers. Any current players that you could think you could see in the media these days? Uh, well, I've already seen Alyssa Healy in the commentary box. Yeah. So she's she, been good. She's, yeah, she, she'll have been absolute natural. She's a lock-in. No doubt. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Um, but yeah, I mean, mentioning Mel, Mel Jones and, you know, Isha and, and Ebony and Lisa Stalaker. And, you know, we've all been fortunate to become really good friends as Natalie Germanos and, and Cass and I do in South Africa as well. And it's a really great community of all of us, actually, because there's a lot of shared experiences in and amongst that. And um, Natalie was commentating as a journalist sort of on radio, you know, from when I was starting as well. And Mel Jones was um, guesting, like doing games with Sky um, over in England um, you know, before she stopped playing even. So, yeah, there's a lot of sort of shared and, and common journeys in that. And also just a sense of common purpose that we, we, we all know where the women's game and where women in broadcasting has, has been. And so therefore a sense of, yeah, there is kind of a, a bigger picture that we're all working, you know, with each other as much as, you know, we work for kind of rival networks and rival <laughs> yeah. broadcasters, but, <laughs> you know, there's, you don't see it like that at all. And it's a, it's a great support network actually. Um, and, you know, with our, with our male colleagues as well, because, you know, we all work with some ap- people who are absolute gold as well in the commentary box and behind scenes. So yeah, it's, it's a pretty good space at the moment. Awesome. And if you could give one piece of advice to young women who are keen to get into the world of broadcasting, what would you tell them? Perseverance, passion. You know, it's always going to be a tough road to get those first opportunities. And you know, I, I was knocked back my first actual job I applied for at the BBC. I didn't get. You have to come back and you know go for it the second time, the third time. But for for people who are really willing to work hard and keep pursuing, keep knocking on the doors, keep putting in that extra effort, then there's some great opportunities out there. Amazing. Alison, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you today on the Scoop podcast. So many pearls of wisdom, I'm sure. So many of our fans will listen to you and feel absolutely inspired to, if they can't go on and play cricket, jump into the broadcasting world. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. Really good to chat. 